0: Chapter 7, Part 2 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Lardner, Washington, D.C. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart by Alexander Dumas, Chapter 7, Part 2. On opening her eyes, Mary Stuart thought she had had one of those dreams so painful to prisoners, when waking, they see again the bolts on their doors and the bars on their windows, so the queen, unable to believe the evidence of her senses, ran half-dressed to the window. The courtyard was filled with soldiers, and these soldiers, all friends who had hastened at the news of her escape. She recognized the banners of her faithful friends, the Satans, the Arbroaths, the Harries, and the Hamiltons. And scarcely had she been seen at the window, than all these banners bent before her, with the shouts a hundred times repeated of, Long live Mary of Scotland, long live our Queen! Then, without giving heed to the disarray of her toilet, Lovely and chaste with her emotion and her happiness, she greeted them in her turn, her eyes full of tears, but this time they were tears of joy. However, the queen recollected that she was barely covered, and blushing at having allowed herself to be thus carried away in her ecstasy, she abruptly drew back, quite rosy with confusion. Then she had an instant's womanly fright, she had fled from Loch Castle in the Douglas livery, and without either the leisure or the opportunity for taking women's clothes with her. But she could not remain attired as a man, so she explained her uneasiness to Mary Satan, who responded by opening the closets in the Queen's room. They were furnished, not only with robes, the measure for which, like that of the suit, had been taken from Mary Fleming, but also with all the necessities for a woman's toilet. The queen was astonished. It was like being in a fairy castle. Mignon, said she, looking one after another at the robes, all the stuffs of which were chosen with exquisite taste. I knew your father was a brave and loyal knight, but I did not think him so learned in the matter of the toilet. We shall name him groom of the wardrobe. Alas, madam, smilingly replied Mary Satan, you are not mistaken. My father has had everything in the castle furbished up to the last corselet, sharpened to the last sword, unfurled to the last banner. But my father, ready as he is to die for your majesty, would not have dreamed for an instant of offering you anything but his roof to rest under or his cloak to cover you. It is Douglas again who has foreseen everything, paired everything, everything even to Rosabelle, your majesty's favorite steed, which is impatiently waiting in the stable, the moment when, mounted on her, your majesty will make your triumphal re-entry into Edinburgh. And how has he been able to get her back again, Mary asked. I thought that in the division of my spoils, Rosabelle had fallen to the fair Alice, my brother's favorite sultana. Yes, yes, said Mary Satan, it was so. And as her value was known, she was kept under lock and key by an army of grooms. But Douglas is the man of miracles. And as I have told you, Rosabelle awaits your majesty. Noble Douglas, murmured the queen with eyes full of tears. Then, as if speaking to herself, and this is precisely one of those devotions that we can never repay. The others will be happy with honors, places, money. But to Douglas, what matter all these things? Come, madam, come, said Mary Satan. God takes on himself the debts of kings. He will reward Douglas. As to your majesty, reflect that they are waiting dinner for you. I hope, added she, smiling that you will not affront my father, as you did Lord Douglas yesterday, in refusing to partake of his feast on his fortunate homecoming. And luck has come to me for it, I hope, replied Mary. But you are right, darling, no more sad thoughts. We will consider, when we have indeed become queen again, what we can do for Douglas. The queen dressed and went down. As Mary Satan had told her, The chief noblemen of her party, already gathered round her, were waiting for her in the great hall of the castle. Her arrival was greeted with acclamations of the liveliest enthusiasm, and she sat down to table with Lord Satan on her right hand, Douglas on her left, and behind her little William, who the same day was beginning his duties as page. Next morning the queen was awakened by the sound of trumpets and bugles. It had been decided the day before that she should set out that day for Hamilton, where reinforcements were looked for. The queen donned an elegant riding habit, and soon, mounted on Rosabelle, appeared amid her defenders. The shouts of joy redoubled. Her beauty, her grace, and her courage were admired by everyone. Mary Stuart became her own self once more, and she felt so bring up in her again the power of fascination she had always exercised on those who came near her. Everyone was in good humor, and the happiest of all was perhaps little William, who for the first time in his life had such a fine dress and such a fine horse. Two or three thousand men were awaiting the Queen at Hamilton, which she reached the same evening, and during the night, following her arrival, the troops increased to 6,000. The 2nd of May, she was a prisoner without another friend but a child in her prison, without other means of communication with her adherents than the flickering and uncertain light of a lamp. And three days afterward, that is to say between the Sunday and the Wednesday, she found herself not only free, but also at the head of a powerful confederacy, which counted at its head... Nine earls, eight peers, nine bishops, and a number of barons and nobles renowned among the bravest of Scotland. The advice of the most judicious among those about the queen was to shut herself up in the strong castle of Dumbarton, which being impregnable would give all her adherents time to assemble together, distant and scattered as they were. Accordingly, the guidance of the troops who were to conduct the Queen to that town was entrusted to the Earl of Argyll, and the 11th of May she took the road with an army of nearly 10,000 men. Murray was at Glasgow when he heard of the Queen's escape. The place was strong. He decided to hold it, and summoned to him his bravest and most devoted partisans, Kirkcaldy of Grange, Morton, Lindsay of Byers, Lord Lochleven. And William Douglas hastened to him, and six thousand of the best troops in the kingdom gathered round them, while Lord Ruthven in the counties of Berwick and Angus raised levies with which to join them. The 13th May, Morton occupied from daybreak the village of Langside through which the queen must pass to get to Dumbarton. The news of the occupation reached the queen, as the two armies were yet seven miles apart, Mary's first instinct was to escape an engagement. She remembered her last battle at Carberry Hill, at the end of which she had been separated from Bothwell and brought to Edinburgh. So she expressed aloud this opinion, which was supported by George Douglas, who in black armor without other arms had continued at the Queen's side. Avoid an engagement, cried Lord Satan, not daring to answer his sovereign and replying to George as if this opinion had originated with him, We could do it, perhaps, if we were one to ten, but we shall certainly not do so when we are three to two. You speak a strange tongue, my young master, continued he with some contempt, and you forget, it seems to me, that you are a Douglas, and that you speak to a Satan. My Lord, returned George calmly, When we only hazard the lives of Douglases and Satans, you will find me, I hope, as ready to fight as you, be it one to ten, be it three to two. But we are now answerable for an existence dearer to Scotland than that of all the Satans and all the Douglases. My advice is then to avoid battle. Battle! Battle! cried all the chieftains. You hear, madam, said Lord Satan to Mary Stuart. I believe that to wish to act against such unanimity would be dangerous. In Scotland, madam, there is an ancient proverb which has it that there is most prudence in courage. But have you not heard that the regent has taken up an advantageous position, the queen said. The greyhound hunts the hare on the hillside as well as in the plain, replied Satan. We will drive him out wherever he is. Let it be as you desire then, my lords. It shall not be said that Mary Stuart returned to the scabbard, the sword her defenders had drawn for her. Then, turning round to Douglas, George, she said to him, Choose a guard of twenty men for me and take command of them. You will not quit me. George, bent low in obedience, chose twenty men from among the bravest men, placed the queen in their midst, and put himself at their head. Then the troops, which had halted, received the order to continue their road. In two hours' time, the advance guard was in sight of the enemy. It halted, and the rest of the army rejoined it. The queen's troops then found themselves parallel with the city of Glasgow and the heights which rose in front of them were already occupied by a force, above which floated, as above that of Mary, the royal banners of Scotland, on the other side and on the opposite slope, stretched the village of Langside, encircled with enclosures and gardens. The road which led to it, and which followed all the variations of the ground, narrowed at one place, in such a way that two men could hardly pass abreast, then, farther on, lost itself in a ravine, beyond which it reappeared, then branched into two, of which one climbed to the village of Langside, while the other led to Glasgow. On seeing the lie of the ground, the Earl of Argyle immediately comprehended the importance of occupying this village. And, turning to Lord Satan, he ordered him to gallop off and try to arrive there before the enemy who, doubtless, having made the same observation as the commander of the royal forces, was setting in motion at that very moment a considerable body of cavalry. Lord Satan called up his men directly, but while he was arranging them round his banner, Lord Arborath drew his sword, and approaching the Earl of Argyll, "'My lord,' said he, "'you do me a wrong in charging Lord Satan to seize that post. "'As commander of the vanguard,' It is to me this honor belongs. Allow me then to use my privilege in claiming it. It is I who received the order to seize it. I will seize it, cried Satan. Perhaps, returned Lord Arborath, but not before me. Before you and before every Hamilton in the world, exclaimed Satan, putting his horse to the gallop and rushing down into the hollow road. Saint Bennett and forward! Come, my faithful kinsman, cried Lord Arborath, dashing forward on his side with the same object. Come, my men-at-arms, for God and the Queen. The two troops precipitated themselves immediately in disorder and ran against one another in the narrow way where, as we have said, two men could hardly pass abreast. There was a terrible collision there and the conflict began among friends who should have been united against the enemy. Finally, the two troops, leaving behind them some corpses, stifled in the press or even killed by their companions, passed through the pell mell and were lost sight of in the ravine. But during this struggle, Satan and Arborath had lost precious time, and the detachment sent by Murray, which had taken the road by Glasgow, had reached the village beforehand, it was now necessary not to take it, but to retake it. Argyle saw that the whole day's struggle would be concentrated there, and understanding more and more the importance of the village, immediately put himself at the head of the body of his army, commanding a rear guard of two thousand men to remain there and await further orders to take part in the fighting. But whether the captain who commanded them had ill understood, or whether he was eager to distinguish himself in the eyes of the queen, scarcely had Argyle vanished into the ravine, at the end of which the struggle had already commenced between Kirkcaldy of Grange and Morton on the one side, and on the other between Arborath and Satan, then without regarding the cries of Mary Stuart, he set off in his turn at a gallop, leaving the queen without other guard than the little escort of twenty men which Douglas had chosen for her. Douglas sighed. Alas, said the queen, hearing him, I am not a soldier, but there, it seems to me, is a battle very badly begun. What is to be done? replied Douglas. We are every one of us infatuated from first to last, and all these men are behaving today like madmen or children. "'Victory! Victory!' said the queen. "'The enemy is retreating, fighting. "'I see the banners of Satan and Arbroath "'floating near the first houses in the village. "'Oh, my brave lords!' cried she, clapping her hands. "'Victory! Victory!' "'But she stopped suddenly on perceiving "'a body of the enemy's army advancing to charge the victors in the flank. "'It is nothing!' It is nothing, said Douglas. So long as there is only cavalry, we have nothing much to fear. And besides, the Earl of Argyle will fall in in time to aid them. George, said little William. Well, asked Douglas. Don't you see the child went on, stretching out his arms toward the enemy's force, which was coming on at a gallop? What? Each horseman carries a footman armed with an arquebuse behind him so that the troop is twice as numerous as it appears. That's true, upon my soul, the child has good sight. Let someone go at once, at full gallop, and take news of this to the Earl of Argyle. Aye, aye, cried little William, I saw them first, it is my right to bear the tidings. Go then, my child, said Douglas, and may God preserve thee. The child flew quick as lightning, not hearing or feigning not to hear the queen who was recalling him. He was seen to cross the gorge and plunge into the hollow road at the moment when Argyle was debouching at the end and coming to the aid of Satan and Arborath. Meanwhile, the enemy's detachment had dismounted its infantry, which immediately formed up, was scattering on the sides of the ravine by paths impracticable for horses. William will come too late, cried Douglas. Or even, should he arrive in time, the news is now useless to them. Oh, madmen, madmen that we are! This is how we have always lost all our battles. Is the battle lost, then? demanded Mary, growing pale. No, madam, no, cried Douglas. Heaven be thanked, not yet. But through too great haste, we have begun badly. And, William, said Mary Stuart, He is now serving his apprenticeship in arms, for if I am not mistaken, he must be at this moment at the very spot where those marksmen are making such quick firing. Poor child, cried the queen, if ill should befall him, I shall never console myself. Alas, madam, replied Douglas, I greatly fear that his first battle is his last, and that everything is already over for him, for unless I mistake, there is his horse returning riderless. Oh, my God, my God, said the queen, weeping and raising her hands to heaven. It is then decreed that I should be fatal to all around me. George was not deceived. It was William's horse coming back without his young master and covered with blood. Madam, said Douglas, we are ill-placed here. Let us gain that hillock on which is the castle of Crookstone. From thence we shall survey the whole battlefield. No, not there, not there, said the Queen in terror. Within that castle I came to spend the first days of my marriage with Darnley. It will bring me misfortune. Well, beneath that yew tree, then, said George, pointing to another slight rise near the first. But it is important for us to lose no detail of this engagement. Everything depends, perhaps, for your Majesty, on an ill-judged maneuver or a lost moment. Guide me then, the queen said, for as to me I no longer see it. Each report of that terrible cannonade echoes to the depths of my heart. However well placed as was this eminence for overlooking from its summit the whole battlefield, the reiterated discharge of cannon and musketry covered it with such a cloud of smoke that it was impossible to make out from it anything but masses lost amid a murderous fog. At last, when an hour had passed in this desperate conflict, through the skirts of this sea of smoke, the fugitives were seen to emerge and disperse in all directions, followed by the victors. Only at that distance it was impossible to make out who had gained or lost the battle, and the banners which on both sides displayed the Scottish arms could in no way clear up this confusion. At that moment there was seen, coming down from the Glasgow hillsides, all the remaining reserve of Murray's army. It was coming at full speed to engage in the fighting, but this maneuver might equally well have for its object the support of defeated friends as to complete the rout of the enemy. However, soon there was no longer any doubt, for this reserve charged the fugitives among whom it spread fresh confusion. The Queen's army was beaten. At the same time, three or four horsemen appeared on the hither side of the ravine, advancing at a gallop. Douglas recognized them as enemies. Fly, madam, cried George, fly without loss of a second, for those who are coming upon us are followed by others. Gain the road while I go to check them. And you, added he, "'addressing the escort, "'be killed to the last man "'rather than let them take your queen. "'George! George!' cried the queen, "'motionless and as if riveted to the spot. "'But George had already dashed away "'with all his horse's speed, "'and as he was splendidly mounted, "'he flew across the space with lightning rapidity "'and reached the gorge before the enemy. "'There he stopped, put his lance in rest, and alone, against five, bravely awaited the encounter. As to the queen, she had no desire to go, but on the contrary, as if turned to stone, she remained in the same place. Her eyes fastened on this combat, which was taking place at scarcely 500 paces from her. Suddenly, glancing at her enemies, she saw that one of them bore, in the middle of his shield, a bleeding heart, the Douglas Arms, Then she uttered a cry of pain and drooping her head. Douglas against Douglas, brother against brother, she murmured. It only wanted this last blow. Madam, madam, cried her escort, there is not an instant to lose. The young master of Douglas cannot hold out long, thus alone against five. Let us fly, let us fly. And two of them taking the queen's horse by the bridle, put it to the gallop at the moment when George, after having beaten down two of his enemies and wounded a third, was thrown down in his turn in the dust, thrust to the heart by a lancehead. The queen groaned on seeing him fall. Then, as if he alone had detained her, and as if he being killed, she had no interest in anything else, she put Rosabelle to the gallop, and as she and her troop were splendidly mounted, they had soon lost sight of the battlefield. She fled thus for sixty miles without taking any rest, and without ceasing to weep or to sigh. At last, having traversed the counties of Renfrew and Ayr, she reached the Abbey of Dundrennan in Galloway, and certain of being, for the time at least, Sheltered from every danger, she gave the order to stop. The prior respectfully received her at the gate of the convent. "'I bring you misfortune and ruin, father,' said the queen, alighting from her horse. "'They are welcome,' replied the prior, "'since they come accompanied by duty.' "'The queen gave Roosevelt to the care of one of the men-at-arms "'who had accompanied her, "'and leaning on Mary Satan, who had not left her for a moment,' and on Lord Harry's, who had rejoined her on the road, she entered the convent. Lord Harry's had not concealed her position from Mary Stuart. The day had been completely lost, and with the day, at least for the present, all hope of reascending the throne of Scotland, there remained but three courses for the Queen to take, to withdraw into France, Spain, or England. From the advice of Lord Harry's, which accorded with her own feeling, she decided upon the last, and that same night she wrote this double missive in verse and in prose to Elizabeth. My dear sister, I have often enough begged you to receive my tempest-tossed vessel into your haven during the storm. If at this past she finds a safe harbor there, I shall cast anchor there forever. Otherwise the bark is in God's keeping, for she is ready and cocked for defense on her voyage against all storms. I have dealt openly with you, and still do so. Do not take it in bad part if I write thus. It is not in defiance of you as it appears, for in everything I rely on your friendship. This sonnet accompanied the letter. One thought alone brings danger and delight. Bitter and sweet change places in my heart With doubt and then with hope It takes its part Till peace and rest alike Are put to flight. Therefore, dear sister, if this card pursue That keen desire by which I am oppressed To see you, Tis because I live distressed unless some swift and sweet result ensue. Beheld, I have my ship compelled by fate to seek the open sea when close to port, and calmest days break into storm and gale, wherefore full grieved and fearful is my state. Not for your sake, but since in evil sort Fortune so oft snaps, strongest rope and sail. Elizabeth trembled with joy at receiving this double letter. For the eight years that her enmity had been daily increasing to Mary Stuart, she had followed her with her eyes continually as a wolf might a gazelle. At last the gazelle sought refuge in the wolf's den. Elizabeth had never hoped as much. She immediately dispatched an order to the Sheriff of Cumberland to make known to Mary that she was ready to receive her. One morning a bugle was heard blowing on the seashore. It was Queen Elizabeth's envoy come to fetch Queen Mary Stuart. Then arose great entreaties to the fugitive, not to trust herself thus to her rival in power, glory, and beauty. But the poor dispossessed queen was full of confidence in her she called her good sister and believed herself going free and rid of care to take at Elizabeth's court the place due to her rank and her misfortunes. Thus she persisted in spite of all that could be said. In our time we have seen the same infatuation, seize another royal fugitive who, like Mary Stuart, confided himself to the generosity of his enemy England. Like Mary Stuart, he was cruelly punished for his confidence and found in the deadly climate of St. Helena the scaffold of Fotheringay. Mary Stuart set out on her journey then with her little following. Arrived at the shore of Solway Firth, she found there the warden of the English marches. He was a gentleman named Lowther who received the queen with the greatest respect, but who gave her to understand that he could not permit more than three of her women to accompany her. Mary Satan immediately claimed her privilege. The queen held out to her her hand. Alas, mignon, said she, but it might well be another's turn. You have already suffered enough for me and with me. But Mary, unable to reply, clung to her hand, making a sign with her head, that nothing in the world should part her from her mistress. Then all who had accompanied the queen renewed their entreaties that she should not persist in this fatal resolve, and when she was already a third of the way along the plank, placed for her to enter the skiff, the prior of Dundrennan, who had offered Mary Stuart such dangerous and touching hospitality, entered the water up to his knees to try to detain her. But all was useless. The queen had made up her mind. At that moment, Lowther approached her. Madam, said he, accept anew my regrets, that I cannot offer a warm welcome in England to all who would wish to follow you there. But our queen has given us positive orders, and we must carry them out. May I be permitted to remind your majesty that the tide serves? Positive orders, cried the prior. Do you hear, madam? Oh, you are lost if you quit this shore. Back, while there is yet time. Back, madam, in heaven's name. To me, Sir Knights, to me, he cried, turning to Lord Harry's and the other lords who had accompanied Mary Stuart. Do not allow your queen to abandon you. Were it needful to struggle with her and the English at the same time, Hold her back, my lords, in heaven's name, withhold her. What means this violence, Sir Priest? said the warden of the marches. I came here at your queen's express command. She is free to return to you, and there is no need to have recourse to force for that. Then, addressing the queen, Madam, said he, do you consent to follow me into England in full liberty of choice? Answer, I entreat you, for my honor demands that the whole world should be aware that you have followed me freely. Sir, replied Mary Stuart, I ask your pardon in the name of this worthy servant of God and his queen for what he may have said of offense to you. Freely I leave Scotland and place myself in your hands, trusting that I shall be free either to remain in England with my royal sister or to return to France to my worthy relatives. Then, turning to the priest, your blessing, Father, and God protect you. Alas, alas, murmured the abbot, obeying the queen. It is not we who are in need of God's protection, but rather you, my daughter. May the blessing of a poor priest turn aside from you the misfortunes I foresee." Go, and may it be with you, as the Lord has ordained in his wisdom and in his mercy. Then the queen gave her hand to the sheriff, who conducted her to the skiff, followed by Mary Satan and the two other women only. The sails were immediately unfurled, and the little vessel began to recede from the shores of Galloway to make her way towards those of Cumberland. So long as it could be seen... They who had accompanied the queen lingered on the beach, waving her signs of adieu, which, standing on the deck of the shallop which was bearing her away, she returned with her handkerchief. Finally the boat disappeared, and all burst into lamentations or into sobbing. They were right, for the good prior of Dundrennan's presentiments were only too true. And they had seen Mary Stewart for the last time. End of chapter 7, part 2, recording by James Lardner, Washington, D.C.